Jesus said that he came to proclaim good news, translated uh, the gospel. Paul reflected later and said that the gospel, the good news of Jesus was simply this, that Christ lived, that he died, that he was buried, that he was resurrected the third day. And then Paul said after he was resurrected, he was seen for over 40 days. Paul was very clear that he was not only seen by the apostles, the disciples immediate to him, Paul said he was seen by over 500 people. 500 Christians in the early church reported having seen Jesus in those 40 days after the resurrection. Paul went on to say that the good news continued after those 40 days. Jesus ascended into the heavens. And after ascending into the heavens, he poured out the Spirit some seven days later at Pentecost. This is the good news. The birth, the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the post-resurrection sightings, the ascension, and then the outpouring at Pentecost. The church was so marked in those first days by these linchpin events that they began to shape a calendar almost immediately. Now they didn't have Easter celebrations and Christmas celebrations and Advent and Lent celebrations immediately, but immediately they did set aside the first day of the week, Sunday, as their holy day. This was no small task. This was a group of people who predominantly or dominantly had come from the Jewish faith. For hundreds of years, over a thousand years, these people had set aside Saturday, the last day of the week, as their day of rest. And now Paul took them, the early church fathers took them from the honoring of the last day of the week to the honoring of the first day of the week. It was immediately called the Lord's Day because it was on a Sunday that the women first encountered the risen Christ. So almost immediately the idea of marking, sacramentalizing the calendar was a part of the church's life because again they came with Jewish roots and the calendar had been a huge part of the Jewish faith. We read in the second century people like Irenaeus of Lyons and others say that around that time called Easter, around that time of celebrating the resurrection of the Lord, in pockets of the church, the church began to concern itself with preparing for Easter. There was a sense, as I prayed a moment ago, that the day was too big just to waltz up to and waltz away from. And so for the first couple of hundred years of the church, there was this sense of one to two days of preparation. I think it was Irenaeus who even said that there was a 44 our preparation for Easter. And then something happened in the first part of the fourth century. A fellow by the name of Constantine took the throne of the Roman Empire. He took the role of Caesar. Constantine was uh, familiarly connected to Christianity. His own Christianity came late in his life, but his wife, his mother, and others were Christian. And Constantine recognized politically, not only familiarly, but politically, that it was advantageous to him to mainstream Christianity as one of the empire's acceptable religions, which had never happened before. There had only recently, in the past 50 years, been an entire empire-wide pogrom or genocide of Christians. 
The first 250 years of Christianity, there was never a universal edict against Christianity. Christianity wasn't large enough to merit that. But as Christianity grew and became problematic and troublesome and seemingly averse to the empire, finally in that end part of the third century, Christians by the thousands, tens of thousands, and perhaps hundreds of thousands began to die. And then it flipped. Can you imagine the, the whiplash for the church? As the century turned and Constantine took the throne, within a 15-year period, Christianity moved from being a persecuted religion, a religion that you had to live in catacombs and underground churches, to the religion of the empire. Literally, Christianity became advantageous to people within the empire. There were extreme advantages, by the way. Well, something happened. Once Christianity became popularized, and once it became advantageous to be a Christian within the empire, everybody became Christian. And this was bothersome to the church. It was bothersome to the church because the call of Christianity, though filled with celebration and hope and goodness, there was still at the base of our faith this idea of picking up a cross and following Jesus. Now perhaps too much we had associated that with martyrdom, but there was this sense of sobriety that Jesus would come to us and say, just as he said to his disciples as he moved toward Jerusalem, can you drink the cup that I drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism wherewith I'm baptized? Poignant questions. These are the kinds of questions that get people like Martin Luther King Jr. killed. An underlying mantra of his life was that he had answered yes to that call of Jesus to take up a cross, to be baptized, not just with water, but with the baptism of Jesus, which was the mission and the call of Jesus. The church knew this. Embedded in Christianity was a willingness to die for good causes, causes that we were willing to live for. And now this sobering faith, this faith that creates martyrs, this faith that calls us to go against the grain, this faith that calls us to let go of earthly relationships to follow our conscience and have a godly character. Now all of a sudden this faith was popularized. And scads, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of people immediately began to rush our baptismal fonts. And the church knew that they were rushing hastily to the font without true repentance and transformation, without truly giving themselves to the baptism and the cup of Jesus. And so the church began at that point to create a space of time that eventually over about a 100 to 150 year period became a space of 40 days. And any matriculant, any person who wanted to be baptized would not immediately be baptized, but their baptism would be reserved for Easter. Baptisms would only take place for quite a while on Easter. And those people would have to prepare through study and diligence and life Ultimately, 40 days, they would come to that 40-day period of Lent before Easter, and they would literally have to fast. It was not a complete food fast, but it was a significant fast, and some did fast for 40 days. So the season of Lent began as a way of calling people to truly reflect, to 
diligently reflect, to thoughtfully reflect on what, what really it means to pick up our cross and follow Jesus. What does it really mean to be a Christian? What does it mean when Jesus says, can you drink this cup that I drink? And so the season of Lent for the last 1,700 years has been given to the church as a gift. We have taken uh, many um, liberties with the season. Protestants do it different than Catholics, and Catholics do it different than the Orthodox, and Methodists do it different than the Presbyterian. I grew up Pentecost, and the only thing I knew about Lent, it was that stuff that gathered in your pocket over time. But as I've the last 10 to 15 years recognized a more robust body of Christ and really truly embraced the interdenominational idea that in all of our separation, there were probably reasons for our separation, and we probably should have never built the walls that we built, but in those spaces, in those particular spaces of denominationalism, we did have our strengths. And to come back together and to reflect on the strength of Pentecostalism and evangelicalism and Catholicism, instead of trying always, interdenominationalism has ceased trying to figure out what the Church of Christ got wrong, and our question is, what did they get right? We've quit trying to figure out what the Greek Orthodox got wrong, and we've said, what did they offer the body of Christ? Growing up Pentecostal, there were so many extremes in that movement that there was a space of time when I ran from it like my hair was on fire, and yet the longer I go, the older I get, there is a circling back and an appreciation that there was a lot of good. And interdenominationalism offers people like us from all different kinds of backgrounds the ability to take all of these gifts and I believe the honoring and the respecting and the following of a calendar is one of the greatest teaching tools if we'll take it seriously. I was telling Justin's going to give a parishioner's response to Lent as soon as I'm finished here but we were having lunch today talking about this and it's interesting I told him something that surprised me was that through the years as a post-evangelical Pentecostal observing Lent as a pastor I thought it was going to be the Assembly of God and the Church of Christ and the Nazarene and the Baptist that would come thoughtfully to me and say, thank you, we never did this. And while that does happen, interestingly, the most gratitude I get is from Episcopal, Catholic, Orthodox, Lutheran, and Methodist people who said we did that so long that we forgot why we did it. And isn't that true of all of our denominations? We did it so long to come now to a group of people who don't do it professionally and to have celebrants like you who don't know all of the rules but simply get to the heart of the matter has refreshed it for us and it's brought us back to a clarity and an understanding. Season of Lent, a lot of people only understand it's that space of time when we give up something, which I think is a really tragic misunderstanding. It's partially true, but it's in its, par in its partial truth could be quite damaging. Uh, it is true that the church has developed through the years, sometimes more than others, but the church has developed a fetish for suffering. Uh, we, we know that in suffering there is the redeeming hand of God and often suffering can be transformed into great transformation. But at times we have celebrated suffering simply for the sake of suffering. And to celebrate suffering only unto itself I think is a tragic mistake. In the early church, the, the era that I was talking about a moment ago, literally at that same time, the ascetic, not aesthetic, aesthetic has to do, aesthetics has to do with beauty. 
ascetics, A-S-C-E-T-I-C, leave off the H. Asceticism is um, the severe disciplining of life, specifically the body, for the sake of religious fervor. And the ascetic movement that developed into uh, cloistered monasteries and lots of lots of abbas and amas, lots of monks, lots of Christians who would separate from the general population and they would, they would self-suffer, they would self-flagellate, they would, they would harm themselves. Um, the stories are many. Uh, you remember the story of the one fellow back in the fourth century who literally lived on the top of a pole for 40 years, literally. 30-foot pole, a little platform, and he lived there for 40 years. It was a way of showing God how much we loved God. Actually, asceticism grew out of the fact that we had so identified the redemptive hand of God in our suffering that when the empire quit forcing the suffering upon us, in the absence of suffering, in the absence of others making us suffer, we decided to make ourselves suffer. And asceticism began. Because we didn't know how to be Christian without suffering. And if they weren't going to hurt us, then we were going to harm ourselves. That kind of self-harm, I don't believe, honors the heart of God, nor does God require it of us, of us, certainly. So to fast the way I grew up fasting in, in the church that I grew up in, we knew that God would not answer prayer unless you fasted when you prayed. And so we fasted all the time. And I was always guilty that I didn't fast enough. But at least once a week, and then often there was a period where I would do And it was, it, was, um, it was very hard. I do fast these days. I fast mostly between meals these days. Um, I fast breakfast as well because I don't like breakfast anyway. So I've got several ways of fasting. But I, I've kind of even in these days circled back around to fasting because now I realize that fasting is not, it is not an end in itself. And it is not self-harming to prove how much I love a God who was harmed for me. But fasting is a way of regaining perspective. When I think of fasting, I think of Paul's words, that the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are unseen. And our light and our momentary affliction, he said, is working for us a far better and great reward. Fasting has a way of reminding us of how sensate we can get. And I, I do believe our bodies are spiritual, so I don't want to be so self-deprecating about the body that we miss the point. But I, for me, fasting is a way of creating space. Because as Augustine said, even the divine cannot give to full hands. Even the divine cannot give to clenched fists. And so we give up something in the season of Lent. We fast, and it could be sodas, it could be coffee, it could be Starbucks, it could be uh, one particular year. I mean, you can go so far that, again, you missed the point. I decided one year that I was going to give up all fried food. I didn't get anything out of Lent that year because all I did was think about French fries the entire season of Lent. You can self-harm to the point that it misses the point. Um, one year I gave up sarcasm. 
And that was tough. And yet I think sarcasm is often the poorest form of wit. And it often is the chicken's way of telling the truth. And I grew up in an incredibly nice southern religious family and sarcasm became our free way of telling you what we really thought and then saying, oh, I was just kidding. I fasted sarcasm and it changed my life. It literally caused me to realize that um, though I'm still sarcastic in some relationships, sarcasm can be quite painful. I walked away from that season. Um, a couple of years ago, I decided instead of taking something out of my life that I would add something to my life. And I decided to read the Beatitudes every morning. The first few days it was lovely, then there was about 25 days where it was rote and it was boring. And Richard, then there was like this final seven days where all of a sudden it slipped into a zone. And after 33 days of reading it, it became magically alive to me and transformative. Lent is not a way of impressing God, self-harming. Lent is that season when we give up sweets or red meat or Starbucks coffee or sarcasm. And actually what we're doing is interrupting the normal course of our life. I have a biorhythm and so do you to your life. We just, you know, drive in that Dunkin' Donuts lane every morning and get the coffee. We have this biorhythm, this rut that we can get into. And in Lent, we give something up or add something to our life that disrupts the normal biorhythm, the normal social rhythm of our life. And we don't disrupt, again, simply to hurt ourselves or to bother ourselves. We disrupt to create space. And the commitment is, in that moment when I would have been sarcastic, I bite my tongue, not because it was a heinous thing to do, but I am disrupting my normal pattern. And as I disrupt it, a space is created, and in that space, I reflect on the gospel. I reflect on what we call the Paschal Cycle. At the heart of the Christian faith is the Paschal Cycle of life and death and burial and resurrection. And so in that moment when I would have had the coffee, instead of the coffee, I take those three minutes, and for 40 days, I reflect on the meaning of the cross. I reflect on how a good man's death could mean so much to the world. I reflect on why in the world Paul would call the burial good news. And it was in a Lenten season as I was reflecting on the fact that Paul called the burial the good news that, it, that I realized, holy cow, the women who encountered the resurrected Christ did not go believing in a resurrection. They went tending to a burial. And I thought about how we rush past our grief, how we overrun our grief, how we are so quick just to move on to resurrections from death, how, how silent Saturday was a part of the biorhythm of life just as much as Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, and how beautiful it is that when we, through therapy, spiritual direction, an altar of prayer, counseling, wherever it is, 12-step groups, when we tend decently, when we tend with decency to the deaths in our life, when we bring ointments and perfumes to that which has died because we know that it's too good to stink, and though it isn't now, it still is a huge part of our life, when we bring those spices to the tomb, it just might be there that we meet the resurrected Christ. 
that came to me, not when I was studying for a sermon, but in a Lenten reflection. So we create space, we disrupt our life, and we think about the Paschal cycle. And Justin's going to come and talk about this from his perspective. He and I have been deserving, or observing Lent together. We don't deserve Lent. We've been observing it for years. <clears throat> so come on up, Justin. I, but here's, here's the Paschal cycle, whatever. And I really want to encourage you as a pastor here, set something aside. Add something. Do something that disrupts the normal cycle of your life. And think about this, the gospel. Good Friday is when we name our deaths. Looking back over the last year, has anybody had any deaths in your life? Vocationally, financially, relationally, a dream has died. Good Friday is when we name our deaths. Silent Saturday is when we take time to hear Jesus say, Blessed are they who mourn, not tolerated, blessed are they. Silent Saturday is when we grieve our losses. Resurrection Sunday is when we claim our births. The 40 days after Resurrection Sunday is when we adjust to the new reality, the new life that we have now. And then the ascension is when that which has been, that which has now been adjusted, that which we are still destabilized, our equilibrium is not quite settled, it takes us out to a mountain and it goes away. The ascension is where we let go of the old and we let it ascend back to God. And we say with Job, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. And the Bible said as he ascended and he left them that they worshiped him and he blessed them as he left them. The ascension is where we let go of the old, let it ascend, and we allow the past, that thing that has died, that has been adjusted now, we let it give us its blessing. And then Pentecost is where we go and bewildered, confused, and yet trusting, the Spirit pours out on us a life that is now going to become our new reality. Anybody live the gospel in your life? This is so much richer and better than just getting a ticket punch so you don't have to go to the hot spot and you get to go to the eternal Disney world. The gospel is richer. So let's set aside some space in our hearts. So uh, the last few years, probably last four or five, uh, I've paid attention to observing Lent. I didn't grow up in a church that observed Lent, but I did. And it's usually things like uh, a couple of years ago, I got off Facebook for 40 days. Uh, I gave up pork for 40 days. But last year, um, I gave up blaming other people for 40 days. And... Um, I think I did that because in 2015 and 2016, I went through a divorce. And some of you in this room have been through a divorce, either as a, a participant in that process or as a child or a brother or a sister or a parent. 
And one of the things that happens in our culture when two people are getting divorced, you hear the first thing you ask, people ask, is what happened? And what we mean when we say what happened is whose fault is it? Um, I had spent, in the aftermath of that, you spend a lot of time in your life, I have children, and you think about the effects of a divorce on the people around you, your friends and your family. And um, it's hard in that space to not think about whose fault it is. So I got to a good enough place last year that I thought for 40 days I'm not gonna blame anybody for anything. Anything, work, whatever. <laughs> so I forgot to leave myself out of that. So the space that I created that I didn't blame other people, I immediately backfilled with blaming myself, which is every bit as silly as blaming somebody else, I found out. But about halfway through that place, I figured that out too. And about halfway through the Lenten season, I said, I'm not gonna blame myself either for anything. And that left an absence. And, and as Stan talked about, one of the things that I noticed in that Lenten season is that Letting go of something most of the time, for most of us, if we're thoughtful about it, leaves an, an absence. And it's the absences where the teaching happens. It's where it happened for me. And the absence was, and it's funny that Stan mentioned this, the absence was just plain old grief. Um, because the question for me in so many of my relationships, work, personal, is not whose fault is this, it's what are we gonna do now? You know, it's not, how did you get here, Justin, and what did you do wrong? It's, who do you want to be, and how are you going to do that? So Lent, for me, was paying attention to the absence created by the thing that I gave away and letting God fill that space for me and paying attention to it. And I think, I don't think it has to be something that's, that's that personal. I, I think it can be something, I think Stan mentioned giving up Starbucks a $5 cup of coffee a day. So I take that thing, and that may seem very trivial, but I, I let that go. So normally I go to Starbucks and I get a cup of coffee for $5 a day. And so at that moment every day that I don't go get that Starbucks or I crave it or I think about it, there's an absence. And I can fill that absence with something else or I can pay attention to it. And I can listen to that absence and I can say, why did I want to go do that in the first place? What was going on? Was I bored? Was I whatever? Or I can think about the fact that the median monthly income in India is $138. The median. That means in the country of India, the family that's right in the middle makes $138 a month. And I go buy a cup of coffee for $5 a day. And I can think about that. And not to beat myself up, but just to think about, man, I never stopped to consider how unbelievably disparate wealth is in this world. It just hadn't crossed my mind. And I think the bigger, that leads to what the biggest piece of maybe about all this is, is salvation or mindfulness or enlightenment, at least for me, is such a difficult thing to process. We all want it. We read the books and we go to the conferences and we come here and we get our batteries charged and we run out into the world and we're like, now I'm mindful, now I'm here. And by like Tuesday, that, that wearies, we become weary by that. But if you've ever heard the phrase, you, you know, how do you eat an elephant? But you eat the elephant one bite at a time. I think the really thing about, the, the, the thing about Lent that's transformed me a little bit 
is that mindfulness can come from just removing that one little thing. Mindfulness doesn't come all at once. It can come from a little tiny absence inside that begins to spread. And if you pay attention to that one absence, and that one little tiny absence brings mindfulness, then maybe something next to it inside of you connected also does, and there's a momentum to it. So this year I'm going to give up <laughs> offering my opinion unless I'm asked. I'm a lawyer, I do this, I'm, I'm paid to offer my opinion. But the amazing thing is, just as I came in last year's life, uh, yeah, I, thanks. <laughs> you did ask me to do this, so I'm covered. But, the, but I thought about last year, as moving into last year, I needed to let go of this idea of how did I get to where I am and much more where I'm going. In the same way that I watch the discourse that happens among friends and in the country, Opinions are no longer ways that we relate to each other. They're the way that we build walls and identify who we are and push you away. In most of my relationships, the first turnoff that happens in a conversation is when I offer an unsolicited opinion. Those are, the, those are the guards that we throw up with one another. Because my offering opinion still is me wanting to stake my ground or me wanting to explain myself to you when I should be spending my time listening to you explain yourself. Tell me who you are. So this year I'm going to give up offering an unsolicited opinion. And that's going to be really hard. But I'm hoping that the absence of that, when I'm about to say, well, what I think about that is, I'll stop and I'll say, what do you think? And maybe that absence creates a space. I love the emphasis on the idea of space. I said a moment ago, and Justin just made the point well that Lent is a season of repentance. Repentance is one of those words in religious circles that has fallen on hard times because it's been associated with such extremism for some. But repentance is a beautiful word. It represents a beautiful thing. It simply represents the potential of a human being to have their mind changed. And not just their mind changed on an opinion but to have their mind literally transformed. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Often when I'm talking to people that I'm diametrically opposed with, I think to myself, there's nothing I could say that would change their mind. And then it occurs to me, the same is true in the opposite. There's nothing that they could say to change my mind here and now. And maybe that's fine, but I do know this, at 49 years old, 50 next month, I do not want to live the rest of my life with my mind fixed. I'm just a kid, aren't I, Tommy? I'll tell you, you're the best looking 86-year-old I've ever seen. She has not aged in 12 years, has she, anybody? And years ago, when we came to inclusion, she and Billy, he's... Baptist folk, I thought surely when I was making the list in my mind about who was going to leave over our inclusion, I thought, well, Tommy and Billy are some of our older <laughs> members. They come from a Baptist background. They were the first ones to me that said, this is right. We've been thinking like this forever. I said, why? She said, we've just always had, seems like everywhere we go, we have a neighbor couple who's gay, and it just never made sense to us what the church did. I want to have the capacity to have my mind changed. I want, and the reason Lent is so important is because the Bible says God gives us a space to repent. 
I remember very few moments in my life where in a point of time, in a conversation or a moment, I changed my mind. But God is gracious enough, God doesn't give us a point to sign on the dotted line. He just gives us a gay couple living next to us. And over time, in a space, we repent. And our minds and our lives are changed. So to that end, well said, Justin, I want us just to close our eyes as we move to this, uh, the time of the Eucharist, the time of Holy Communion. Just close our eyes for a moment and offer our heart to God. Offer our minds with the capacity to be changed. As we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, I would love for you to think about as Lent begins this coming Wednesday, I would love for you to think about that disrupting element that you could gift yourself with this Lenten season. What is it that you could offer, that you could offer up, not as some sacrifice given to a demanding God, but as a gentle tool a grace-filled interrupter. Let's take a few seconds here, and would you do that? Would you just, maybe, maybe you never read, and you know you, you wish you had time to read. Maybe you commit to read a chapter a day from a book. doesn't have to be the Bible, but it sure could be. This is something that disrupts. Sweet Christ, as we come to the table, we remember that on the night before you lost your life, you gathered with your dearest friends, even one who would betray you, one who would deny you and others who would run away from you. You gathered with them and in the wake of a Paschal dinner, a Paschal Passover supper, you took a remnant of bread and you said, this is my body. And you tore it and you broke it and you gave it to us and we received it. You took the remnants of the wine and you said, this is my bloodshed for you. As often as you drink this, remember me. We are a forgetful bunch. As Justin said, by Tuesday, we often have forgotten. May this Lenten season increase our memory, our spiritual ram. May it 
Help us to gather our heart a little more effectively. As we continue to reflect on that which we would create space with, space with this Lenten season, we ask you to forgive us of those things that we have left undone. And forgive us for those things that we have done that we sorely regret. Make our hearts clean. We celebrate your great love and grace in this supper now.